everyone, my name is Tabitha Davis. I'm a civil engineer, a longtime volunteer with the nonprofit Engineers Without Borders, and the host of this podcast. Here's what you can expect today on Calculated Change. I, I barely blink when I hear a no now. You maybe, maybe send 20 emails, you get 18 no's, those two yeses, you never know what those are going to lead to. And I was just talking with a friend who was saying, you know, a no changes nothing, but a yes could change everything. On this interview, I spoke with Jacob Foss. He's the co-founder and COO of the social enterprise AgriCycle. To kick things off, I asked him if he could give me a rundown of what AgriCycle is and does. Yeah, absolutely. So at AgriCycle, we connect smallholder farmers in emerging economies to global markets. And we do so through something called a vertically integrated supply chain and portfolio of upcycled and ethically sourced brands. So to unpack that a little bit, the vertically integrated supply chain part just means you're taking many different pieces and putting them into one supply chain instead of having many different pieces go into many different supply chains. It's much more sustainable, environmentally friendly, and efficient and cost-effective. So for instance, we could take a mango and you have the fruit of the mango and then you also have the pit and the skin. And usually the pit and skin are wasted and you may make value out of the, the fruit itself. But we take the pit, mill it into a flower, it's fiber rich, and then the skin, you can extract it into a mosquito repellent or cosmetic. And so then we have three different products that now we're putting into the same supply chain. So instead of three different trucks going, we have, we have one truck, take three different products. You're also adding three times the value to farmers for something that otherwise would have gone to waste. Then the um, portfolio of upcycled and ethically sourced brands is just our various brands, which is the Jolly Fruit Co., the, the dried fruit brand that uh, upcycles would be fruit waste into value-added products. And from pineapple to mango to jackfruit, then there's a QR code, a traceability system on each package that consumers can scan. And then it takes them to the cooperative who process their fruit, tells them all about the impact and the metrics that, that their bag has created. And then we have a sustainable charcoal brand, Tropical Ignition, that burns hotter and lasts longer than traditional charcoal and is much better for the environment because it's using biofuel, uh, coconut shells and palm kernel shells instead of trees. So that's that's the major deforestation component. And then um, we have ingredient supply as well. But so all these different brands are put into the same supply chain to further um, eradicate the waste and add value to farmers. And so and go into you know more aspects of, of agricycle, basically we have this large network of farmers that we've developed, trained them on how to process the richness and of abundance of fruit and vegetables and tubers, things like that, natural resources around them, and brought a market to them and connected those through that supply chain. Now that I understood a little bit more of the world of vertically integrated supply chains and portfolios of ethically sourced brands, I wanted to dig into Jacob's story a little bit more and figure out how he became the COO and co-founder of AgriCycle. It sounds like from your description that your work is really economic focused as well as agriculture focused, but my understanding is that's not what your background is. Yep. Um, what was your undergraduate uh, program at UW-Madison? Yeah, it was kinesiology, so studying so the movement of the body. And it, I was on the pre-med track, you know, medicine somehow, uh, PT, PA, or doctor, some, one of those routes. And then I was pretty close to deciding, all right, I'll go, I'll try to go to med school, see how that goes, but I need to take a break from school. 
So that's why I went to the Peace Corps originally um, from college. So I went to Northern Ghana doing agricultural development work. And that's what kind of opened my eyes to the path that I wanted to continue and pursue from there on out and just left, uh, left the medical field behind. How did you end up in an agricultural program in, in Northern Ghana? <laughs> That's a great question. Why, why they picked me for agriculture. Um, I, you can choose um, agricultural education, uh, economic development, health are the main ones. And then you can choose a region and, and even narrow it down to a country. I decided to just let, let it play, you know, roll the dice. I would, you can choose, you know, anything, anywhere. That's what I chose and just let you know whatever they needed just put me there the one reason why they chose me for agriculture i believe is uh i did a woofing program for for two months in europe yeah okay you're not you're familiar with it but for those who aren't it's just a, a work exchange that that's farming focused and you go and live with a family for a set period of time then they they house you feed you and then you it's just a labor exchange basically so that was with the number of farms throughout europe and so that's kind of what they thought I was, you know, this, this great farmer who knows what he's doing. Really, I had no clue. I showed up and like, all right, what can, what can we do? So what, what type of farms did you work on woofing? There was, we did four of those. My best friend and I traveled through Europe doing it. The, one of them was a dairy farm, uh, milking cows. So we just, five in the morning, we milked the cows. Five at night, we milked the cows. And we had the rest of the day to, that was in France, to just cruise around the French countryside in our little bicycles. Um, and that, that was so fun. We had a, we would have water fights at the dinner table every night with the, with the family. They were so cool. And then we worked on strawberries, a fruit and vegetable farm. One, I just chopped wood for like <laughs> the whole week. They didn't need someone to chop wood. All right, fine. Um, or the others, yeah, mainly gardens. Oh, and then olive, olive oil producer. That one was really cool in the rolling hills of, of Italy. Wow. That's such a cool way to travel too, because you're really seeing what that region has to offer in such a unique way and, and staying with cool people. And wow. So can you talk a little bit about your experience with the Peace Corps? Um, like how long were you in uh, Northern Ghana and what types of programs, initiatives did you work on? Who did you work with? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, it's a 27 month service. The first three months are kind of cultural orientation and integration in a host community before you go on to your the two years of your service, your stay. And so come in we were just an agricultural cohort and then at the same time there's an education and a health on rotation um, they, they stagger it so in the same region you know each person has their own community i had the closest person i had was about an hour away out powered motorcycle right away and so you just get put placed in this community that they kind of vet you in and match you with and mine was was very very isolated it was a, a mud hut straw roof no running water and you had to go fetch fetch the water um, to take a bath and there's no uh, ceiling it was outdoor compound so I could look up the stars every night taking a bath so there's that aspect and then in terms of work it was really just anything you could now they kind of they tightened it up a little bit but when I went there you could really decide whatever projects you want to get into you know do needs assessment and listen to the community first and foremost that's the most important thing but after you've decided on what they need then kind of fill whatever gaps you feel you can serve best. So I taught English at the school, um, then math and computer science too, because they they were learning computer science on, on books. They'd never seen a computer before uh, for the most most of the students. So just taught them, you know, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, all that stuff. That was fun. 
And then the health, the clinic, there's a clinic in my community. So we did all sorts of different uh, nutrition programs, training programs, malaria, water and sanitation. And then the majority of it was agricultural development. So connecting people, farming groups, organizing farming groups, creating savings accounts, and then getting them connected to the government for subsidized inputs and hopefully markets as well. And then one of my favorite ones was the jewelry uh, women's group, which made jewelry. I went and helped uh, get some of the materials with them and then start to sell some of the materials too. So a lot of different value-added products, jewelry, boutique, tie-and-dye, fabric, uh, sewing, and then honey, beekeeping, things like that. I'm assuming then you were able to carry a lot of the lessons learned in this initial trip into the work that you're doing now. Is there any like big perspective shift that you think helps you a lot in the work that you're doing now? Definitely. The The first one being listen to who you're trying to work with. Like if you think you're helping and you only push your agenda on them, odds are you're not helping and odds are you're doing more harm than good. So that's something that, I mean, just the development world as it is today right now, is it's so backwards in. So that's a big one. That's the, probably the biggest one. Another is just just open my eyes to the reality of so many. I mean, I grew up in suburban Minnesota and been living in a situation like this. It just was so good for me to put things into perspective. And so just kind of the inherent uh, location of, of what, what your life can be, or at least the situation you're surrounded by, just based, based on nothing, nothing you've done. So there's a whole, you know, um, humanity aspect to go down. But in terms of the work I'm doing right now, um, it gave me an understanding of how important culture is when you're working with people of different culture to respect uh, the boundaries, to know the boundaries. And then like with holidays, for instance, if you're going to do projections, um, don't, don't align something during Ramadan because there's for a month people aren't eating or drinking during the day. So that obviously is going to delay things. So that, that's just kind of a more practical one. But in general, uh, there's all sorts of different, it's uh, like if you, if you can shake hands and who starts talking first, just patience is one of the biggest ones too. You can sit down for a meeting and no one says anything for five minutes because everyone's just kind of chilling, being comfortable. And then you're being offensive if you, if you do push an agenda, something like that. Mm-hmm. So all those sorts of different cultural oddities. I've done most of the work that I've done internationally has been in Guatemala. And I also have just nice. learned how... Uh, how much culture plays a role in any project. We're a very engineering heavy uh, organization, but the yeah. sustainability of a project and the like uh, failure of a project is typically based on culture and understanding of the culture. And, and like you mentioned, little things like uh, building, uh, trying to put a construction schedule together and planning to build on a Sunday when it's like, yeah. nope, you do not build on a Sunday or, right. or having a meeting scheduled for a specific time and expecting a whole community to get together at 7am when it's like, yeah. that's not how things are going to go. After finishing up with the Peace Corps, Jacob began consulting for a special ingredient wholesaler. He worked to develop the supply chain between growers of the ancient grain Fonio and markets. Jacob learned a lot about supply chain development in this role. He also learned the value of using connections, a skill that will lead him to the position he has today. So on my way back, just wanted to stop by, see some friends from um, from college. And um, I'm basically did like a speed dating session just with all my friends. I just saw as many people as I could from breakfast to, to evening. And um, 
one of them was also doing entrepreneurial work in sub-Saharan Africa. And he, we started talking about, you know, different passions and, and missions and beliefs and solutions to some of the problems at hand. And then he said, you know, you should really reach out to, uh, to this buddy of mine or this, this other entrepreneur is in my cohort. And I said, all right, cool. So I reached out to him. Then we talked for hours on the phone. And then that ended up being uh, Josh Scheffner is the CEO and, and founder, um, co-founder with for AgriCycle. So Blue Mangos at the time. But so it just shows like you never know what a random day um, meeting up with old friends could lead to literally my, my career, my you know, passion and the, what I'm doing for a living and what I want to do for probably the rest of my life. We'll see. It's so cool to see how you're using your connections too, from the Peace Corps to to just uh, saying yes to different opportunities and and just being like, hey, let's meet for coffee and then try to change the world. <laughs> right. I think it's so important to just uh, so many people are just uh, stuck in in the path that you know society places in the box, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But for those who don't want that, don't don't subject to it you know there's other alternatives that you can do is you talk to, to enough people and explain your passion you can get outside of that path if it's not for you yeah and I, I think that is really inspiring to me I know when I came back from my my three months in Guatemala again like I just had in my mind like next step is to get this this industry job and and tick off all these boxes and that's not how it worked out for me I actually worked uh as a teacher for a little while yeah. before yeah. Um, entering into the the industry. And I think that it's so important for people to just take their own path. Getting into then starting a non nonprofit or are you like a, social- a for-profit social enterprise? Okay. Okay. So getting, getting into being, uh, starting this social enterprise, I imagine that you had to fill a lot of roles in the beginning stages of setting things up of things that you may not have had a big background in, or maybe weren't the most comfortable with, but just kind of had to jump into. Can you describe some of the different um, aspects of, of starting uh, your social enterprise, of starting AgriCycle? Yeah, definitely. I mean, literally everything I do now, besides just kind of leadership and management, is, is completely foreign to me from my, my studies or just like what I've doing for at least the first 20 years of my life. Because, um, you know, once I was doing supply chain development, that was completely foreign to me until I did it. Now, you know, that's staple of my position at AgriCycle. But um, a couple of years prior, that I would have had no idea. Um, but then into kind of what I'm doing currently, like insurance stuff, I don't, I don't like that. No one likes that. And that's a huge part of what I have to do. Make sure everyone's we're compliant with, with everything, all types of regulations across, um, the state lines, federal and international, since we're a global business to make sure all our employees are set there, you know, taxation stuff at a, set up a good amount of that. Um, the FDA regulations, oh my goodness. FDA, USDA compliance for a food product that's cons- a consumable product is starting that out. There's uh, the hours that you spend doing something that you just don't want to do. No one wants to be doing that. People even even in, on the other side are like, yeah, I mean, it stinks, but it's what we got to do. Like, right, well, let's run it together. Some of those type of, I guess, administrative tasks are really not my thing. I love being out in the field, uh, developing things, you know, get trying to figure out, use the vision and match the vision with what we're doing currently and how, how can we get there? Um, and even closing deals too. Like I, sales was, I never thought I'd be in business sales. That that was so distant from what I thought was my values, but, you know, using those 
means to to get to the end goal and it's a requirement you have to so i i'm so grateful for for the um, position and all the things that i've had to learn to do and as you said just jump in and figure it out that's basically what what i've done for my whole life is jump in somewhere i had no idea was totally uncomfortable with and then you had to figure it out and it's great it makes you um more comfortable and, and all the better for it uh, at the beginning, you mentioned that listening to communities' needs is a big part of the work that you guys do. And you just mentioned uh, being out in the field. I imagine this year that's looked a little different with the coronavirus, but do you typically travel a lot to the communities that you're working in in normal year? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm incredibly lucky as I'm the one who travels the most with our company. And I'm always, if there's a new product, new, uh, new farming group, country we're trying to um, develop operations in it's it's me who goes and i just love that I, culture is one of my favorite things just being being uncomfortable back to that one of my favorite things to do is just go learn go see something new i i love going to a new country and just diving into every aspect i mean cuisine to, to language to, to everything you can do and then when it's coupled with work it's like oh it's a dream come true um and so i really have enjoyed that and it has definitely slowed down, of course, but we, one of the things we, we did to adapt, which I, I thought was really interesting, just kind of working with the technology we have right now is we worked with a major phone carrier, basically the Verizon of the countries we're in in East Africa to, because food safety training is, is a pillar of what we do. It's a staple of being compliant and so consistent contact with the people producing our, our ingredients, our fruits. Uh, you need to make sure that they're they're well trained and comfortable and constant feedback loops. So, with this phone service company, we developed a SMS training technology, um, just playing off mass text, saying here's a picture of what it should look like, or here's three pictures, which one is correct, or here's just a little paragraph of a new strain that we need to avoid. This is how this is how we wash you know, pineapple skins properly. Whatever it might be, just regular messages, very low cost. It was all set up for less than $50 and we can reach, we have 40,000 farmers in our network, but in, the, in that region, we reached tens of thousands of farmers through this. And one, it also is trust is so important in global development as well. And especially with a company, like if you're a Kenyan and you're reaching out to other Kenyan farmers, that's one thing. It still, it still can be um, trust issues, but if you're an American based company going in and reaching out to these Kenyan farmers and that adds a whole nother level of, the history of, of false claims and failed development comes into it as well. Totally understandable. So keeping the constant trust and contact points and communication is really important as well. Um, you mentioned that you're looking into working in Guatemala, but what countries are you working in currently? Yeah, um, East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, West Africa, Liberia, and then in the Caribbean, Central America, Jamaica, Haiti, and Guatemala are all kind of lower, um, lower contact, not not as heavily involved, I should say. And then Guatemala is one of the companies that we're currently working on through for a lot of the uh, field better ingredient line that we're building up. And that's Guatemala is going to be really good for that with a totally different mix of tropical ingredients. So we talked about where you work, but I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about who you work with. Um, I saw on your website, I think it said like refugees and women were high up yeah. on your list of, of people that you work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, 
Yeah, the refugees are our employees that we employ in our uh, factory in, in Liberia for processing the, the charcoal. So just overall, we try to empower rural women, but kind of overarching vulnerable populations. So if that's, if that's youth that's been, like for instance, there's a prison in Kenya that, that I stopped by and had some collaboration with who they take in, it's all, it's all youth, you know, criminalized youth, but they have a rehabilitation program, which I thought was just beautiful. They teach all of the, all the inmates to plant mangoes. And that's kind of their, the, the labor instead of, you know, doing meaningless stuff just for punishment they're going through trainings that allow them to, you know, you could go be jaded for 20, 30 years um, in, in prison, I would assume, and come out and like, you're not going to want to, why would you want to give back to the society who just punished you for all that time? But like the year they're teaching you a skill and wanting you to graduate, basically they have tests and you need to get 70% uh, germination rate is one of the things they require or else you haven't passed that part of the course. And so I just thought that was the greatest concept because then, you know, mango, agriculture mangoes, you can go find a mango pit anywhere, plant it. And then the next, once that uh, tree drops its mangoes, you have unlimited mango trees to plant through their seeds. So we partnered with them and the government to say, okay, once your, once your inmates graduate, once they, once they're released off their uh, parole, then we'll try to take them in in, in our group and then they can have somewhere to sell those mangoes. And it's like, what a great story and what a great impact that could be. So that's a, a unique example Worked with you know UNHCR refugees throughout um, East and West Africa. Women is is ba- that's our that's our biggest uh, majority of our workforce we could say because the areas that we're working in so patriarchal. There's any opportunity it, it'll go through every every man or boy before it reaches a woman. Um, even even down to there's a cultural interesting cultural tidbit when people when families slaughter chickens. There's the, you know, the breast is, is the best part that goes to the head of the house, the male. There's the legs, and that's best. That goes to the oldest boy, usually, or like the uncles. And then there's um, the back meat, which goes to like the baby boy. Then it goes to the mom. So it's just like, that's how much, and, and that's not everywhere by any means. This is one um, area that I was dining with throughout my life. So it's just very, that's a, an example of an of a area that, that we work in. And so just working with women alone is, is uh, a huge vulnerable population um, and all the, all the benefits of having women in the family get the money and then they, what they spend it on. So that's that. And then uh, refugees, women, and, and just youth in general, um, either homeless population or people who have been um, abused, things like that are another group that we try to try to bring in. Yeah, that's so important. And it's so cool to hear how intentional you all are about working with really vulnerable um, or overlooked groups of people. As you started this business, I'm wondering if anything that you guys have kind of like tried to do um, has been like a big learning point. Uh, And I'm saying that instead of like a failure. (laughs) So is there anything that you've like tried to implement or you were like, this is going to work really well and it just doesn't. And then how did you like course correct? Because I'm sure that's disheartening, especially like starting out. Yeah, I mean, there's COVID definitely threw around. The first thing that came to mind was our our tropical ignitions, the coconut charcoal brand. So when COVID came with with Jolly, the Jolly Fruit Co., we were able to 
because we had decentralized so many different cooperatives, so many different groups of suppliers that even if 20 people, 20 groups were unable to produce, we still had 20, 20 more that were able to, instead of if you're centralized, you have one or two main suppliers, one or two of them, either half or all go down and you know, you're out of luck. With Tropical, we were in Liberia, which all borders closed down, import and export. So we were unable to, to move anything and we had not established operations in East Africa which was a mitigating fact that we should have done looking back on it, but just didn't you know, we spread, spread thin as it was. Didn't have the resources to do so. And it was fine that we didn't. Um, but that was one I'm, I'm trying to, th- I mean, there's the thing with us is we, <laughs> we throw so many ideas out there that we're just constantly uh, brainstorming at least more so at the start. Now we're kind of, we have our, our set paths are more so structured and are just executing now in the execution state, which is great. But I can't um, like dark example isn't coming to mind because there's probably been so many that I'm sure I personally threw out. They were like, God, that's such a bad idea. How did you even think of that? And so to me, it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Just throw something out there. So I'm sure my team members could, could answer your question with 40 different examples of my dumb ideas. But uh, I just, yeah, that's just part of the part of your job. That's funny. I just think that, in like that space, it is just a, a brainstorm session and you have to learn to evaluate, you know, is this going to be best for the community? Is this feasible? What are the hoops that we have to jump through for this? What's the impact of this going to be? And you start considering so many different things. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure that that's been a well, learning uh, process. One example I can give of something that, you know, it's still definitely by no means a failure or a I don't know what you call it, area for improvement, whatever nice term you put on it. We we just call it what it is. It's <laughs> no problem with us. Um, but the so we s- distribute uh, dehydrators that we manufacture in, in Wisconsin, and we distribute those to to our cooperatives all around the world. And we partner with you know nations, FAO, governments, smaller NGOs, things like that, to connect to farmers and their network to help grow and expand our network, but then also they have relationships with them to distribute these in a uh, either subsidized or payment plan structure, even microfinance institutions. And we had plans for, you know, when we were doing projections, we were so confident we would sell 500 of them by, by last summer. And that was going to be a good source of income for us and then allow us to go do different things instead of being cash strapped. But that was just one thing that we were very confident on and, and it didn't work out. We're still, it's not like it, it killed us. It's not like we lost inventory or that model, that part of our business model didn't work at all. It's just delayed. So mm-hmm. I'd say that that's more so things, things have gotten delayed or just projections didn't work out as much as we thought in certain areas and some it worked out better. That's kind of the nature of the business. But yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a more concrete example of something we all thought was this will go. Well, and like you mentioned, the the pandemic, like how do you plan for, for that? Uh, right. And you've learned things, but again, it's uh, it's adaptability in crazy times too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked you earlier to think about a time where something maybe didn't work out, <laughs> but I also was wondering if there's a moment or maybe a couple of moments where you've been in a community or even just listening to the community or evaluating some of the things that have like really worked out where you're like, 
we're doing this and it's, it's doing what it's supposed to. Has there been like a aha moment for you in that? Yeah, those come from just hearing the stories of, of the women that we work with saying, you know, we are, because of the money that we've gained through your fair wages, we have been able to send three kids to school where we haven't been able to send any kids. We haven't even been able to feed three meals a day. So just hearing anecdotes like that is, that's basically the reason why we're all doing this. But that's just kind of, you know, we recently uh, scheduled video calls with some of the farmers to, to reinforce those. And, you know, we know what's happening, but it's so different just saying, yep, that's happening, like check versus let's take time to have a video call, talk with, um, you know, have, have leaders of the company talk with, with a farmer who's telling them these stories. And that was, that's just been really special. Um, and, and we take a, we call it a mangocation. And every year we, we go, we bring the whole global team. So there'll be probably over 30 of us by the next time we do it. And we started in Uganda last year and, and right before COVID happened, we we're actually in Kenya going to Tanzania the day uh, Trump issued the travel ban. So we all had to come back, but that's a great time for all of us to have a cultural exchange, get on the same page of any, any problems that come up that we didn't even foresee. Everything always comes up. Um, most things always come up, which is great. But then it also gives us a chance to meet so many different communities. We go and they greet us with their their singing and dance, and you know, give us um, like a, a breadfruit, a couple of chickens, which to them is like it's like thirty percent of what they have for that month, maybe in terms of income. Right? That's probably over exaggerating, but it's a, it's a significant amount. And then they're just willing to give it to us right there because they, they just feel so honored to have guests like this. And so that exchange is so powerful. And those gestures and just hearing their their dance and welcome songs, it's that's one of my favorite things for sure. And um, yeah, so I think that's mainly what I would say. And one, one kind of unexpected thing is our tropical edition brand in itself. It was just a friend who came to us basically saying, hey, these uh, coconut shells really burn hot. You guys thought of exploring them as a, as a byproduct to upcycle. And like, no, but we'll look into it. And now it's you know possibly one of our, our largest revenue creating brands in the future. As you filled all of these different roles in a path that you probably didn't predict you were headed towards um, as an undergrad and a completely different major, uh, is there something really key that you've learned about yourself or the capacity you have to to influence and do good um, through this whole process? Definitely. There was uh, a couple different things I'll speak on in terms of just looking inwardly of what you're capable of. It sounds so cliche. I'm going to say it anyway. You truly are. You can do as long as you're reaching out to enough people, not taking no for for an answer and putting yourself out there. You can do almost anything. There's obviously limits in all regards, but um, no, hearing hearing no's like I am, I I barely blink when I hear a no. Now you you maybe send 20 emails, you get 18 no's. Those two yeses, you never know what those are going to lead to. And I was just talking to the friend who we were saying, you know, a no changes nothing, but a yes could change everything. And that's probably been said before, but we thought we invented it. So uh, we're going to take credit for that. Um, but it's so true. Like you can, from, if you're in a lecture or like a, or a conference or something, try to pick a name or two and reach out to them and listen, take a, a tidbit of what they said and then put that in your message. And they'll really appreciate that. So wow, this person was really in tune. Um, that means something you developed a connection. And if you do that, you know, you put yourself out there, first of all, in the, the webinar, maybe you say something during the webinar, maybe you just listen, but you're actively listening and, and trying to say, oh, here's five people that I want to reach out to from there. Uh, you read a book. I think it's great if 
I try to write the author if it resonates with me. An article, same thing. A podcast, you know, write out to the uh, or the or the, the person, the guest, and develop those relationships. That's one of the biggest things is grow your network and then manage it. I think it's so important to most people are like, oh, you know, the most I can get out of a podcast, let's say, is I listen and I learn. That's great. That that is great. But like, you could listen, learn, and then you could further that by even having a call with that person that are interviewing or the host and like both probably have a lot of good things to say. And then just doing that. And so someone just last week called me and said, you know, I'm looking into the, uh, the food industry. Do you have any feedback? That was basically, that was how we started and like led to an hour long conversation. And of course the person doesn't need to answer those questions, but there's enough people who will. And I remember growing up, like you could never do that. That's so, that's asking so much. It's selfish of me to ask to have someone else's time like it's fine if that person views it as selfish then they won't give you your time but who cares then you're where you started and so i think that's just so important um i guess a lot a lot of that answer is a lot of things i was going to say tied into my little rant right there but um not being comfortable always trying to do more say yes to a lot of things so many times where i didn't think i could handle you know this uh, two three main things going on i said yes to a fourth and that fourth, sometimes it can even make the first three you're doing easier because you learn so much more in a different way. Apply it. So I just think you obviously can't spread yourself too thin. You got, especially if you're managing a company, you can't say yes to everything in that regard. But personally, I think put yourself out there and at least try so many different things. Um, grow your network, talk to as many people as you can, uh, reach out, put yourself out there, and you never know what's going to happen. That was really important. I think that you hit a lot of what some of our former guests. Um, also said in, in a different way. Um, I don't know if you were able to listen to the first two episodes, but they were also young engineers that were working with responding to, to the pandemic. And uh, one of them was like, I never thought I'd be here, but I wake up at 7 a.m. and I'm on a call with the UN United Nations Development yeah. Program solving yeah. some of the hardest challenges in our world right now. And, and I think part of it is being passionate about something and then just understanding like, I'm not going to self-regulate or talk myself out of doing something that because I'm, I'm scared that I can't, <laughs> exactly. you know? Um, so it's really cool to see people that have overcome that. And I think that that's something that's been part of your, your life so far is, is believing in that, that uh, passion that you have and in, in chasing it. So that's been, that's Absolutely. cool. That's cool to hear as part of your story. The final question I have then is just, uh, do you have some big goals for AgriCycle moving forward? No, they definitely are. I mean, you, you always have to have, have the goals to strive for in large projections. There's a majority of what we what rests on right now is on the sales end. So uh, we want to be selling in um, up to four continents by the end of the year. And we think we can make that happen. Large accounts throughout. We want to get into some major multinational corporate R&D teams uh, for our ingredient supply, talking to a number of those right now, wanting into a couple uh, big box retail stores, you know, like along, like, along the likes of, of Target, Whole Foods, obviously those are huge destinations for, um, for food manufacturers, food companies, then even, even just grocery stores. And a lot of uh, local Wisconsin grocery stores, we have a lot of local chains across the country right now, but landing those big accounts. Um, those, you know, 50,000 plus unit orders, 100,000 plus unit orders. Um, and those are even on a small side of, of where we want to be for that, where we need to be. 
And then on the development side, we have so many different metric, um, environmental metrics, empowerment metrics, uh, growing our, our network and growing the amount we can pay farmers, just the total, the, the girls pay, we can pay farmers, as well as the number of farmers, um, 50,000 plus, definitely want to be heavy, heavily exceeding that by the end of the year. Um, then there's a long-term goal. One of the things I always dream of is getting to a point where we're affecting infrastructure. So we have made it so much and we're ordering so many containers and tens of thousands of tons of product that they're, the groups that we're farming with are in, in such isolation that now the government has finally recognized them and is aware of them and say, oh, this could bring, you know, this could increase our GDP, let's say, we go huge and we should get them lights. We should get them roads, better access so that they can bring this, this, uh, this fruit, this charcoal, these ingredients uh, more efficiently and meet these demands of this company who's really putting it out there for them. So if we can get to the point where we're affecting um, industrialization and, and infrastructural development, that's, that'd be amazing. As long as it's not, you know, to the point of det uh, a detriment, but if it's a sustainable, sustainable infrastructural development, that's, that'd be incredible. Those are awesome goals. <laughs> and I hope that you accomplish all of them and more. Thank you. Appreciate it. I asked Jacob if he wanted to share any final thoughts. Just harping on that, like, don't, don't get in, don't fall inside of a box. Like we, it's so easy in America, especially the first you know, 21 years of your life, you just go to school and don't think of anything else. Like you just have to get through that. And, um, you know, I'm happy to have a conversation, like, should we go to university or not? But what's assuming we don't, we do. Um, and once you graduate, if you graduate, you definitely don't have to, but if you graduate, then just think of like, what else, what else can I do other than just the nine to five? If, if you, if you want to do that, of course, great, go do that. No problem. Um, but, but like, don't, don't get sucked into it. Kind of like what we were saying earlier. So I just implore people to, to really step back and think in, in everything you do, instead of just putting your head down and going on the grind, do that, but make sure you step back occasionally and look around and see the bigger picture, both personally, both what you're doing right now, what you could be doing in five years and two years and one year and six months. And um, even if it's just like, even if it's not work-related or career-related, I think it's so important to do so. Are you happy with what's around you right now in all aspects of life? To close our conversation, Jacob actually turned around and asked me a question about what I've learned in producing my first podcast. Well, I'll just uh, ask you, you know, if there's any big takeaways you've learned since doing this. Um, you're on fifth or sixth episode, but you've kind of gotten the hang of it, seems. And I, I really like just like the open conversation structure. I think that's really, it's fun to just flow however the conversation goes and ask whatever you want to ask. Um, but any, any big takeaways from you that you've learned that you'd want people to know? Yeah, I think going back to kind of what you said about just like believing that it's possible. I I have no background in podcasting. I yeah, didn't yeah. really um, know where to start. But mm -hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic, I just saw a group of people that wanted to be connected over shared stories and kind of needed inspiration. Yeah. And so I was like that a podcast would be a really cool platform to do this because yeah. nobody wants more Zoom calls. Um, yeah. so, uh, I just started Googling step-by-step, step, like first step, what type of mic do I need to, yeah. to do this? Yeah. And then, like you said, reaching out to your network and then just Googled the next step. And I mm -hmm. didn't know what I was doing and still don't the whole time. And every once in a while, like I get to, like, I get nervous before every interview. And okay. <laughs> I think that like, sometimes when I publish, I'm like, oh, that didn't sound perfect, but 
I think doing things afraid is so important um, and the best way to grow. Uh, And you're going to learn so much in the fire. So you just got to walk into it. Yeah. I want to go back real quick to you saying, I mean, doing things afraid. Absolutely. But then also you're saying, uh, I still don't know what I'm doing. And there's like, look at like, I mean, the interview was great. It went smooth and you've done, you know, five, five others or some published and that many more will be published. And like someone who feels like they don't know what they're doing has done it and done it well. Like, that's what I think is so great. Like people can take that away. You can still feel like you don't know what you're doing. I think you should majority of the time feel like you don't know what you're doing and eventually reach that curve, but then get into a new thing or push yourself a little more. So you feel like you still don't know what you're doing now. Like you've learned all these things in the past. If you look back, but what's in front of you, so many more things you don't know what you're doing, but you're going to go do them. I think that's great. Good for you. Yeah. It's been also, it's just been a privilege to share people's stories. I think it's such a honor to, to have someone's story and to be able to, mm. to help share it and help other people hear it. So um, I've had some really incredible people you included on the show. So if people want to learn more about AgriCycle or get connected to you, is there a good place for them to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take, so our websites um, are just, just the brand as, as their name. So agricycleglobal.com, jollyfruitco.com and tropicalignition.com. Um, I, I won't spell all those out, but, you know, Google search, it'll, it'll come up right away. And then same thing with the, the social media um, at Jolly Fruit Co., at Tropical Ignition and, and, and at AgriCycle for across across the board. Um, and me, um, Jacob Foss on LinkedIn, you can find me or Instagram. It doesn't matter to me how you reach out to me. If you have a question or want to connect, please do. I'm always happy to, to feel that. Thank you all so much for listening. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please check out our new website, calculatedchangepodcast.com, linked in the show notes. Feel free to email me at calculatedchangepodcast at gmail.com, also linked in the show notes, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram as Calculated Change.